Job 1, 6-12 One day the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord asked Satan, Where have you come from? From roaming through the earth, Satan answered him, and walking around on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? No one else on earth is like him, a man of perfect integrity who fears God and turns away from evil. Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Haven't you placed a hedge around him, his household, and everything he owns? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he owns, and he will surely curse you to your face. Very well, the Lord told Satan, everything he owns is in your power. However, do not lay a hand on Job himself. So Satan left the Lord's presence. Hey, church family, glad to have this opportunity to open the scriptures, to open God's word and to learn of God and to experience God in the pages. If you're new or just happen to be joining us for the first time, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors of Sound City Bible Church, and uh, we are going through a sermon series in the book of Job. And the book of Job, the setting of the book of Job, takes place in an incredibly tumultuous time in the life of a particular man, a man named Job. And as we consider the world that we're living in right now, we are seeing just some unprecedented tumultuous times. We are seeing all sorts of things that have long been uh, just assumed in public life and in society coming unraveled. We're seeing all sorts of uh, hatred and animosity, and we're seeing all sorts of things in our world that just, we don't, frankly, we just don't understand it. And I am convinced that uh, the Word of God has hope and has truth for us, and I'm convinced that um, as we go through the book of Job, as we spend the summer months looking at this book, it's not as much uh, a book about how to suffer well as much as it is a book about how to make sense of the world around us. And boy, if we ever needed to to make some sense of the world, world around us, now is the time. Uh, I want to just say that, you know, as we're going through the book of Job, this is our second week in Job, and we're going to be going pretty slow at the beginning. These first uh, three chapters in particular are very dense, and so we're going very slow. As we continue through the series, we're going to start speeding up. We're going to go kind of big chunks at a time. We're not going to go uh, every single line, every single verse through the book of Job. So what I'm asking you to do is read ahead. I'm asking you to read ahead, and I'm asking you to uh, write down your questions and send them to me as we go so that I can hopefully, you know, as, we, as, as I and the other elders teach through this, we can help craft these teachings to address those questions that you're thinking. So uh, my email address is easy to find. Uh, reach out to your community group leader, send it to me, send it to one of them, and they'll get it to me. Uh, so start reading ahead. Read and reread, especially these middle sections that are more poetic. You might have to read the same chapter two, three, four times to really kind of internalize what's being said there, and that's okay. So, so with the series, we're going slow right now. We are going to speed up. So please read ahead. And then let's also remember our interpretive key that we learned last week is there, there was no covenant. This takes place outside of the land of Israel in a very ancient, even patriarchal time. And so uh, there's, there's not the defined relationship between God and his people in the book of Job, which is why it is so hard for Job and his friends to really, truly grasp uh, the ideas of God's justice and his wisdom and how he rules the world. So let's remember that. 
And then we're going to dive into uh, Job chapters 1 and 2 a little bit, and we're going to look at uh, some things that have long left readers of the Bible scratching their heads. I hope uh, I have some things that will be helpful today to say. So let's pray together. God, would you, God, even right now, would you guide my lips and direct my speech? God, would you help me to say those things that are true? Would you help us to understand your, your word better? And would you shape us, uh, Lord Jesus, to love you, to worship you more, to follow closer to you, and to understand better the world in which we live? We give this time to you. We thank you for the truth of your word. And we pray, pray your blessing. Uh, God, I just pray a blessing over all the people who are listening to this right now. In such strange and unprecedented times, we really need to know that you are close to us and that you care about us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, I, I just have a very simple goal for today's teaching, and that is to help you understand the Bible better in such a way that will help you understand the world in which we live better. You know, some sermons are more heart-focused, on, you know, the, the feelings and, and the sadnesses and the joys and the different things that we experience in the affections of the heart. Some sermons are more uh, hands and feet-focused. I want you to do something. I want you to get out and, and do something. This one is more mind-focused. I want you to think biblically about Job, and and, and in particular, this aspect that we're introduced here in the book of Job to the supernatural perspective of the scripture. The Bible is unabashedly, unashamedly a supernatural sort of book. And it's hard for us when we come to a passage like Job 1, 6 and following, it can be hard for us to really truly understand what is being said. And that's really sad because if we miss out on what is being said here, we miss out on other things that the Bible has to say for us. And we actually, we, we, we miss out on what God has to say about the world that we live in. It's really easy to get it wrong. In our culture, this, this idea of a supernatural perspective, a supernatural worldview. First of all, we have a big cultural gap. This book was written thousands of years ago. And while the Bible is written for us, it was not written to us. It was written in the context of the ancient Near East. It was written to a group of people that spoke a different language, had different customs, lived just in a completely different world that we live. And, and so the Bible obviously speaks to us because it's the words of God, but at the human level, it's easy for us to miss because of a cultural gap. We also have a worldview gap. The Bible assumes a world in which the world of space and time is infused with the spiritual and supernatural world of God. We live in a world that assumes naturalism. It is so easy to slide into the ditch, even as a Bible-believing Christian, to slide into the ditch of naturalism. Just the idea that uh, what we see and taste and smell and touch and observe, that's all that there is. So we, we fall into the, the trap of naturalism. We, we also have a hard time sometimes understanding the supernatural worldview of the Bible because of a lot of historical confusion and speculation about the subject. You, you know, you go throughout history 
And these ideas of angels and demons and the Satan and spiritual realm, it's fascinating and it leads to a lot of speculation. And so you got Dante's Inferno in the 1300s or Milton's Paradise Lost in the 1600s. And I might even step on some toes with this one, but this present darkness from the 1980s, which is imaginative, but not necessarily corresponding to the perspective and the worldview of the Bible and in all that it says. Sorry if that steps on your toes. And some of us have personal apathy or antipathy about the subject of the supernatural worldview, especially for those of you who've seen, you know, C.S. Lewis talks about there's these two ditches we can have when it comes to uh, particularly about demons and the powers of darkness. Some people get over-fascinated. And as someone who is raised in and around charismatic church circles, I know that ditch all too well. Over-fascination with the supernatural, but that leads many of us, and especially in the context of speaking to Sound City Bible Church and Martha Lake Baptist, I feel like I know us well enough to say, that's not the ditch that we're necessarily prone to going in. More of us are prone to going in the ditch of just saying, well, it's all spooky, it's all crazy, it's all confusing, so therefore I don't know and I don't really have to care. We're probably... Our, 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 our wheels are closer to that ditch than they are to the ditch of over-fascination. So because of all of those things, we come to Job chapter 1, verse 6, and we're just left feeling disconnected or confused or scared. One day, we've already, we've already had the context. Job lives in the land of Uts outside of Israel. He's a really, really good guy who takes responsibility not only for his own shortcomings, but even for the sins of his children, making sacrifices on their behalf. He's the greatest of the people of the East. He has incredible wealth and incredible riches, and he's just a really godly guy. Verse six, one day, the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. And the Lord asked Satan, where have you come from? Well, from roaming through the earth, Satan answered him and walking around on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? No one, all, no one else on earth is like him, a man of perfect integrity who fears God and turns away from evil. And, and, and Satan answered the Lord, does Job fear God for nothing? Haven't you placed a, a hedge, like a, a protection around him? His household and everything he owns, you've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But if you would just stretch out your, your hand and strike everything he owns, he would surely curse you to your face. Very well, the Lord told Satan, everything he owns is in your power. However, do not lay a hand on Job himself. So Satan left the Lord's presence. We read that and go, What? Who are these sons of God and what is Satan doing in the presence of God, making a wager with him? And, and how much power does Satan have to go attack people? And, and is the suffering in my life right now happening because God lost a bet to the devil? Like what in the world is going on? Now, the, 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 the Satan here poses a really, really important question. And I'll just mention it here. We're going to set it aside. This is what we're going to deal with next week, this question. But it's this question of, hey, God, I know you think that Job is really righteous, but I would like to suggest that he only serves you because you bless him so much. Does he serve you for nothing? No, he doesn't. He, he might, it's, it's hard to know, but he might only serve you because you take such good care of him. You bless him so much stuff. So 
We're going to address that next week. If you can, I know that's, it's hard to set that aside for right now, but I simply want us to address the supernatural view of the universe. You know, if last week's interpretive key for the book of Job is there was no covenant, today's interpretive key is there's a realm beyond what we can see and experience with our eyes and with our senses and with our ears. There's a world that's, that's above us and beyond us, but nevertheless, there are effects that we experience. So the, the big idea really for today simply is this. Let's look at the world like Christians. It's far too easy to be a naturalist. Okay, so in, in talking about this uh, idea of a supernatural world and this idea of supernatural beings, uh, I want to lay just a couple of biblical baselines, okay? So the, the broader perspective of the Bible, and I'll sum it up in three words, variety, hierarchy, loyalty. Variety. There's a wide variety of spiritual supernatural beings with a various with various uh, titles and various names. Sometimes we think, well, there's angels and there's demons. And that's sort of true, but it's actually much more complicated than that. On, on Sound City's website, I have attached a PDF document that has a pretty long glossary of different names of different spiritual beings. You have living creatures, holy ones, the hosts or the armies of heaven. Uh, you've got things like cherubim and seraphim, which, which uh, when you study them out, the cherubim, are, we, we're supposed to think of them like a guardian angel, like a throne room guardian, not a, not a guardian angel. Just, by the way, just Side note, talking about speculation and, and, and uh, you know, kind of historical confusion. A biblical cherub is a terrifying, fiery, winged creature. And every time the Bible talks about cherubs, cherubim, uh, people fall to the ground as though they are dead. Why in European Western art have they become to be portrayed as chubby, cute, little naked babies. I will, I cannot for the life of me understand the disconnect of a naked, chubby baby with a flaming throne room guardian secret service agent who protects the, the holiness of the, of the presence of God. I don't get it. But the, the point being, as I put up this whole glossary of all these terms and all these different references from the Bible of this wide variety of spiritual beings. So it's more complicated than just angels and demons. Second, we can see in the pages of the Bible that there is a hierarchy. Now, we don't want to go into over-speculation, but even a term like archangel gives us a clue that while there are angels, there are archangels. The Greek for arche is, is over or supervising. Actually, if you think about it, angels would be one of the lower ranking members of God's uh, supernatural uh, creations because angel is just a messenger. That's, a, that's an errand boy. That's, that's just a messenger who, who goes out and delivers some information. You have archangels and you have rulers and you have these sons of God, which I'll come back to more specifically in a moment. And then, yes, the, 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 the word loyalty must come up. Because we see that in this wider world of supernatural beings that the Bible tells us exist, some are loyal and some are disloyal. Some are loyal to the one true creator God and some have rebelled. Now, in this hierarchy, there's a group known as the sons of God. 
And, and for you, if, if you're listening and you're a Christian, and even for those of you who are listening in that might not be Christians, you probably know that the Bible uses the word, the phrase, I should say, son of God, singular, uh, for Jesus. Jesus is the son of God. The Bible also uses sons of God for us who are followers of Jesus, who are believers in him. We are adopted into the family as sons and daughters of God. And and actually, uh, even specifically, both men and women are called sons of God because we all get an equal share of the inheritance. And that's a a cool theological thing that we we as men and women are, are equal, not only image bearers of God, but equal recipients of his redeeming grace. That's a cool thought. So believers are sons of God. Uh, The Bible also refers to the people of Israel as the son of God. Back in Exodus, God calls Israel his firstborn son. But the Bible also uses this phrase, sons of God, to refer to a group of supernatural beings. And if you want to know more about this, Click over to Job chapter 38. In Job chapter 38 is when the Lord starts speaking to Job. And Job, he's bringing a correction to Job after Job lodges some, some pretty unfair complaints against God in his suffering. And God says to Job, God says, Hey Job, wh- where were you when I established the earth? And he says this, he says, While the morning stars sang together and all of the sons of God shouted for joy. The point is, this phrase, sons of God in Job, but also elsewhere in the scriptures, refers to heavenly beings, supernatural beings, who were present with God when he created the earth. They sang for joy. The morning stars sang for joy and the sons of God shouted for joy. Maybe we could think of it this way. This is, this is not super complicated, but some of this might be new for you. So, so, so try to think. And I'm going to give you some homework afterwards to go and study some of this out yourself. But think about this. Okay, so the first thing is this. Think in the language of family. Sons of God. These are not just messengers or errand boys. These are not just, uh, you know, the soldiers or servants. This is like God's heavenly family. That there's a, a closeness of relationship, that this group known as the sons of God, out of all of the heavenly hosts, there's a group that God has called sons, and he gave them authority. You know, in the ancient world, a king wouldn't just hand off the kingdom to anybody, he would hand it off to his son. Or if you were a merchant and you owned a business, you would give it to your sons. You would, you would give the authority and the responsibility to rule. You might have servants, but you put your kids in charge. And, and that's actually exactly what we see that God does with the sons of God. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, Moses is speaking to the people of Israel before they enter the promised land. Moses is speaking to him. He's he's saying, remember the ancient days. And he's he's kind of calling to mind the whole story of how God brought them up to this point and how they're going to get to go into the promised land. And Moses makes this little comment in Deuteronomy 32. He says, you know, when, when the Lord divided mankind across the face of the earth, it says he divided them according to the number of the sons of God. And then Moses says, 
But God kept the nation of Israel for himself. And the idea here is that God, in his sovereignty and in his divine prerogative, chooses and and chose to govern the nations of the world through these sons of God. That he placed them into positions of authority so that they would rule over the nations uh, the way that he placed his human family in the garden to rule and steward over the earthly creation. That God doesn't need anyone else. He doesn't need any other supernatural beings. He doesn't need humanity. But there's something about God where he loves to share his rule and reign with his created beings. And so he put these sons of God in charge of the nations and he himself kept Israel as his treasured possession. That actually helps us if you think back to when we studied the book of Daniel. You know, why was the why was the angel warring against the prince of Persia? Well, it's referring to a spiritual being, a one of these sons of God who ruled over the nations. And then so family, authority, nations, but unfortunately, rebellious. The Bible's pretty clear that the nations have not remained loyal to Yahweh God, have not remained loyal to the true creator God. And it's due in part to the bad leadership and the rebellion of these sons of God. Psalm 82. Psalm 82 says God stands in the divine assembly, like this heavenly courtroom where he, where he calls his, his cabinet meetings, as it were. And it says he pronounces judgment among the gods. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? In verse six, he says, I, you are gods. You are all, here it is, sons of the most high. However, you will die like humans and fall like any other ruler. God set the nations under the authority of these other rulers, these supernatural beings, and they have rebelled against God and have led the nations astray. Here in the book of Job, we don't necessarily have that complete picture as I just painted for you, but we see that God is, in essence, calling a cabinet meeting. He's calling a staff meeting. This is a king calling all the princes in that rule over the various territories. It's, it's the day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Status report. How are we doing? Now, we don't see all of that rebellious you know, stuff that I talked about. We get that in later books, like in, in the Psalms and other places that the nations have turned aside and followed and worshipped these other gods, these other so-called gods. So, that's what's going on here in the Bible when it talks about the sons of God. Pretty easy, right? Well, I think that's easy. Let's keep going and look at this other figure, this challenger who intrudes. So on the day the sons of God came, the Satan also came with them. Now, I, I say the Satan on purpose because in the Hebrew, it's the Satan, Virtually every single one of our English translations has made an interpretive decision on our behalf. They made a decision for us and they translate it. My Bible here, I'm using the CSB translation. 
but it's the same in the ESV or the NIV or the King James or any other translation. They all put capital S Satan, like the proper name of Satan or the devil, particularly as we come to know him in the New Testament. The, the problem with it is that's just not grammatically correct. Hebrew, like English, does not use the in front of a name. I am not the Aaron. You are not the Johnny, the Susie. I know that we have uh, that great American treasure, the rock, but he's the exception that proves the rule. In Hebrew, you didn't have the Abraham. You didn't have the Sarah. You have names without that definite article. And so this character, the entirety of chapter one and chapter two, every single time it's the Satan, the challenger. And, and this word, it's ha-shatan. Ha is the, and shatan. It's actually a pretty common word in the Old Testament. It does not, most of the time, actually, some would even say in the Old Testament, ha-shatan never refers to the devil. It's a pretty strong claim, but some scholars claim that. But, but here's what we do know pretty easily, that it's a normal word that just means an opponent or a challenger or an adversary. There's times when it talks about, you know, soldiers or kings going to war and they're, they're, they're a Satan to the other one. There's actually a time when, when it says that the angel of the Lord was a Satan, a challenger. When, when Balaam was on his donkey and he's going to deliver this, this oracle, this prophecy, and says the angel of Yahweh stood in, in front and the donkey didn't want to go, and it said that the angel of the Lord stood in front as a Satan. It's just, it's a, it's a word that means a challenger. Now, here's, here's something I, I want to ask you to do. I want to ask you for a minute, for a minute, to think like an ancient Israelite before the New Testament, before Jesus, before, even before the intertestamental books. Just put all that aside for just a moment and you're reading this story. You don't think of Satan as capital S, Satan, a proper name just yet. You just see that the sons of God come and there's this figure, this challenger who comes in among them and is asked to give a status report. God asks the Satan, where you been? It's like time to check in. Um, I almost think of it, one of the commentaries used the language of like a, almost like a prosecuting attorney. That he serves in this role where like his role is to go out and find like who's doing good, who's doing bad and come back and give a, a status report to the Lord. Christopher Ash wrote a really helpful commentary on Job. He said, it is sometimes assumed that because the Satan is evil, he cannot be a member of the council and must have barged in uninvited. So the Lord's question from where have you come is read in a hostile voice. What do you think you're doing here? But this is unlikely. The word among probably suggests that he is a member of the group. There need be no hostility or implied rebuke in the question, from where have you come? Probably, it represents something like a president asking a cabinet secretary for his report. Secretary of War, it's time for your report. Tell us where you have been and what you've seen. He's like a prosecutor out there challenging and testing people's faith to see if it's genuine. And he raises a good question. Can we just, again, try to set aside that you know about the New Testament for just a moment. You're just reading this story, an ancient Israelite. He raises a good question. 
Does, you know, God says, hey, have you considered my servant Job? He's such a good guy. And this challenger goes, well, yeah, I mean, because you buy him off. You, you pay him, you take good care of him. He's got a lot of camels and 10 kids and like he, he's, he's living the dream. He raises a valid question. And so as we'll see in the story, we'll, we'll continue to read this next week and beyond, that the Lord allows the Satan to harm his stuff. I know it's, it's hard to refer to, you know, children, adult children as like possessions or whatever, but it's, it's kind of that mindset in the ancient Near East. He's, he's stripped of all of his possessions, his oxen, his donkeys, his servants, and his children. They all are, are either kidnapped or stolen by raiders, by like a band of terrorists, or natural disasters come, and, and all of that bad stuff happens to Job. I want to skip ahead to chapter 2, because one day— The sons of God came again to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came with them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord asked Satan, where have you come from? It says here, actually, he came to present himself before the Lord. That's even more specific. It's almost all the exact same language as in chapter one, but that one little subtle twist. He's, He's coming to present himself before the Lord. Oh, I've been roaming through the earth, Satan answered, and walking around on it. The Lord said to, Job, uh, to, to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? No one else is like him, a man of perfect integrity who fears God and turns away from evil. He still, challenger, retains his integrity, even though you excited me against him to destroy him for no good reason. Ah, skin for skin, Satan answered the Lord. There's one of those sayings, a colloquialism that no commentator really knows what it means. It's something like, it's something like, well, you hurt his skin, he'll, he'll come after your skin. Maybe kind of like an eye for an eye sort of a thing. A man will give up everything he owns in exchange for his life, but stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones and he will surely curse you to your face. Very well, the Lord told Satan. He's in your power, only spare his life. You can't kill him because otherwise this test, we won't be able to, Get the the results. So Satan left the Lord's presence and infected Job with terrible boils, like immediately went out. In, in In the first challenge, it says, well, it came to pass, like eventually some time went by. Here, the Satan leaves and immediately goes to work, infecting Job with terrible boils from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery to scrape himself while he sat among the ashes. The suffering has now intensified. In the, in the first round, it was only Job's stuff that was harmed. Here, it's his, his own personal self. And anyone who has suffered or struggled physically will tell you that there is a uniqueness to the ongoing physical uh, uh, suffering that some people go through. It's different than uh, external suffering. And, and, and last time, you know, the Satan's test was carried out through secondary means, a whirlwind and, and lightning. Again, go read this, you know, Sabians and Chaldeans. And, and this time, Satan goes and does it himself. And here we see the difference from chapter one to chapter two. There's a subtle turn, a subtle shift. He, he goes from being a prosecuting attorney to a prosecuting attorney who seems to like his job just a little bit too much. He now has a motive, not just of testing Job's faith, but destroying Job's faith. And it it doesn't come through in the English, but you can even, uh, if if you are able to see in the Hebrew, 
a couple different scholars pointed out the kind of the impudence in his language, just the like the rudeness, the assumption. Uh, it, it says he will cur- he will curse you to his to your face, but actually the word in Hebrew is barach. It means to bless. So it's almost like he's like yeah, he'll bless you for like it's this sarcastic thing. And 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 Sam Storms, a, a pastor and an author out of Oklahoma, says notice how abrupt and rude Satan is. Traditional court etiquette in the ancient Near East avoided the use of personal pronouns when addressing a superior. Courtiers would say, my Lord, instead of you, and your slave instead of I or me, but not Satan. And he also uses imperative verbs as if to command what God should do. The challenger comes, raises an important question, causes the first round of suffering in Job's life, comes back and is a little bit miffed that it seems like he's losing the bet. He ups the stakes. His heart of not just testing, but destruction is revealed. And then he disappears from the story and we never hear from him again. That's strange. (laughs) Job laments, the friends come, God shows up, Leviathan makes an appearance, but no more. Ha Shatan, no more the challenger. So you get this picture in the Bible, and it's hinted at here in Job. At least we're we're invited by these pages of Job into this bigger storyline of the Bible that there's there's sons of God who are supposed to be ruling over the nations, who are supposed to be governing on God's behalf in the spiritual realm over the nations of, of mankind, and they rebel and they turn against Yahweh. And then there's a challenger prosecutor who, who goes from, you know, doing the work of testing the sincerity and genuineness of faith to wanting to destroy it. And this whole supernatural realm and the whole human realm, the whole storyline of the Bible is both of God's families, his, his supernatural one and his earthly one, fall away. So what does God do? He sends Jesus who is the son of man and the son of God. All four gospels refer to Jesus in these terms. If the sons of God rebelled, these supernatural beings, then God is going to send the son of God. The one that, that, that in Luke, it says the angel told to Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. There has never been another human being born like Jesus. He's holy. He is unique. He is the Son of God. That's why John 3, 16, For God so loved the world, He sent His one and only Son, that whoever would believe in Him will not perish but have eternal life. That one and only, in the, in the Greek, it's the word monogenes. It's like, it's, it's mono, like one, and genes, or like, like genus, like one of a kind. The, there's never been, there never will be anyone like Jesus of Nazareth. He is the one and only Son of God. And he begins preaching and teaching. Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And, and ultimately, his, his preaching ministry and his healing ministry and his mercy ministry leads him to the point where he dies on a cross in our place because of our sinfulness. 
When he dies on the cross in Matthew 27, it says that the centurion, the Roman centurion, someone who doesn't belong to Israel, but he's part of the nations who have been under the rule of these rebellious sons of God, this centurion is supposed to be ultimately in allegiance to the Caesar, who the coin said was the son of God. This centurion looks up at Jesus hanging on a cross, breathes his last and dies, and the centurion says, truly, this was the son of God. And Jesus is granted all authority and all rulership over all of the nations. The kingdoms of this world are now the kingdoms of our Lord and the rebellious sons of God have been displaced by the perfectly obedient, monogenes, one-of-a-kind, unique son of God and he is now seated on a throne that is above every other throne and he is now ruling over the nations and all things are coming into alignment with his kingdom and that is God good news. It's the good news of the Son of God. And what's more, Jesus revokes the Satan's access. In Luke chapter 10, there's a really interesting connection of, of Jesus sending out the 72 disciples. In, in, in oh, this is complicated stuff, it, you'll have to look it up. In the book of Deuteronomy, there's this thing called the table of nations, where it lists out all the different nations of the world. I'm sorry, not in Deuteronomy, in Genesis, the table of nations. And it's 70 nations. And some, uh, like Septuagint, put 72. So it's like 70 or 72. The text kind of go back and forth with the specific number. Why did Jesus send out 72 disciples? To represent that his good news is now going out to all the nations. That's a complete side nerd rabbit trail to go down. But Jesus sends out the 72 and they come back rejoicing and they say, Lord, even the demons, even these rebellious evil spirits are subject to us in your name. And Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And sometimes we think of that, we interpret that as being like the fall of Satan as like when he went bad. But friends, this is present tense. It's happening right now. As Jesus is saying it, Jesus is saying, it's a good thing that I'm here because now this challenger, this accuser no longer has access to God, no longer has access to heaven to make these challenges and accusations. Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12 is telling the story of the gospel. It's telling the story of the coming of Jesus. And there's this, there's this, there's this moment of praise where it says the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ, our, our king, have now come because the accusers of the brothers and sisters who accuses them before God day and night has been thrown down. Jesus did not just come to die on a cross so that our sins could be forgiven. Jesus came to die on a cross to defeat the forces of darkness, the rebellious sons of God, to be installed as the true king, the rightful ruler over the nations, and to revoke the accuser's access so that he no longer has 
any case to stand before the holy judge. He's a prosecutor with no case. And his, our case has been thrown out. And now, instead of an accuser who accuses us before God day and night, we now have an advocate, Christ Jesus, our high priest, who it says lives to make intercession for us. He lives to advocate for us. There's no more accuser before the throne room of God. We've got an advocate, our big brother, the son of man, the son of God, Christ Jesus. Ha <laughs> I love that. Got all that from Job. <laughs> Job invites us into this worldview. And now we know, we, we know that we still have an enemy. We know that the battle, like the decisive victory has been won, but, but the war rages on and we're waiting for that final day. But the good news is, that he, the, the, the devil, Revelation 12 goes on and says, the devil has come down to you with great fury because he knows his time is short. Great fury because he knows his time is short. He has lost his access to the throne room of heaven. And so he's here on earth now, raging like a, like a wounded animal, still dangerous, but wounded and on the decline. Let's look at the world like Christians. Let's look at the world through this worldview. I, I want to I close with application. And, and this, is, this is not like really simple application. This is complicated application. This is not like, okay, so call three neighbors and invite them to church. This is like radically shift the way that you look at the world and think about things. Let me, let me just do a little quick thought experiment, okay? So right now, uh, the city of Seattle has made national news and national head not, headlines because of something called the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, which is hilarious that it can be um, turned into an acronym of CHAZ, which it just makes it lose all of its intensity. <laughs> this is, it's, this is like, this feels like you know, book of Job, book of Revelation kind of stuff. Like what is happening in the city of Seattle where a group of armed uh, self-professed anarchists have said we are now not under the authority of the city of Seattle or the state of Washington. There's no police. There's no nothing. Like you look at that. Now, now I, I spent a little bit of time reading some blog posts and some articles and th there's all sorts of analysis of like, okay, what are the sociological factors that led to this? You know, how much does the COVID shutdown play into this? How much of this has been, you know, radicalized for years and it's just now coming to the surface and we can learn about all those things and, and there are valid political and sociological and economic realities that have contributed to this situation. But if we are Christians, we cannot ignore that there is a spiritual component to this. I am not saying throw out those more naturalistic explanations or understandings, but I am saying it is sub-Christian to ignore that the, the, the book of Ephesians chapter 2, for example, talks about how there's this, there's this prince of the power of the air, and he's right now at work in the Sons of disobedience. So where there is the casting off of all restraint, where there is anarchy, where there is death, where there is destruction, yes, there are some human uh, explanations for that, but there are also supernatural explanations for that. It's not an either or, it's a both and. The Bible 
invites us into this both-and worldview of, yes, the human world is real and, and, and people make decisions, but there are spiritual realities that, that we just don't comprehend all the time. We don't, we don't see. So, so we got to be sober-minded. Peter in 1 Peter 5 says, be sober-minded, be alert, Recognize that you have an adversary, your opponent, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He's still prowling. He's still doing the laps, but now he's a wounded lion. His pride has been humiliated, and so now he's just out for destruction. So we got to be sober-minded. Friends, don't give the enemy a foothold in your life. Don't toy around with sin Don't keep things hidden in the darkness. Pray like crazy. Yes, serve the poor. And yes, participate in all the the human things that we can do. Let's, Let's love, let's give, let's serve, let's speak out against injustice. But man, we just, we don't pray enough because we don't believe that this supernatural worldview sometimes is really what's going on. Friends, even as Christians, it's far too easy to act like naturalists. So be sober-minded. Resist the devil. Remember where the truest battle is. Ephesians 6, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, the cosmic powers of this darkness against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. There is a war raging on right now between the rebellious sons of God and the the fallen angels and the demons who who hate God and who hate humanity and between those uh, who are loyal to God and his Messiah. Like there is just a, a, a battle going on that we just can't even comprehend. And so our role is to pray. Our role is to stand firm. Our role is to remember that those humans are not our enemy. We have an ultimate adversary, an ultimate enemy who has been defeated by Jesus, who is being defeated by Jesus, and one day will be thrown into the lake of fire for eternal torment. We've got to remember that Jesus is the king. Again, it just this is a complicated point of application. I'm not trying to tell you, like, do this, don't do that. It's, it's, it's think in a whole new way. Picture the world in a whole new way. Don't throw out reasonable human explanations for things, but just remember that there's a spiritual battle going on. And when we look for solutions, our default needs to be, I'm sure glad that Jesus, the Son of God, is now the one ruling over all things. And nations rise, and nations topple and fall, and the nations rage against God, but the Lord laughs, and he holds them in derision because his king, Jesus, is now seated on the throne. So when we go through hardships, when we go through things, you know, when we're depressed or anxious, maybe you're depressed or anxious because you have really bad things going on in your life. Maybe you're depressed and anxious because you're not taking care of yourself physically and you're not getting enough sleep and drinking enough water. And also, maybe you're depressed and anxious because the enemy is harassing you. We're not not looking for easy either-or answers. All those things could be true at the exact same time. 
when it seems like our world is falling apart, when it seems like politicians are greedy and selfish and corrupt, we say, well, we just need better politicians. Sure, we need better politicians, but let's remember that there are spiritual rulers and cosmic powers uh, behind the scenes, and we need to pray against those things. Let's be Christians. Let's think like Christians. Let's observe the world like Christians. Take a little wine because of your stomach, a reasonable human thing, and then pray like crazy that the Lord would heal the stomach and protect us from evil. God, I just I pray as we go into this next week and we're trying to make sense of a world that just seems like it's gone mad, racism and, and, and economic turmoil and uh, misuse and abuse of power and all sorts of things, Lord God, that we are just struggling to wrap our minds around. Would you help us to remember the true nature of the battle and that though there are reasonable, natural, human cause and effect things that we can work towards and we can act on and we can, we can do in our power, Lord God, ultimately what we need is more dependence upon Jesus, the Son of God. Lord, I pray for our world. I pray for our nation. I pray for our state. I pray for the region of Seattle. Lord God, would you, would you stand against spiritual forces of darkness that are opposed to you? Would you, would you crush them? And would you help us as people who have been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light? Would you help us to be about the work that you've given to us as part of your earthly family, sons and daughters brought into the family of God. Help us, Lord God, to do our part as well, even as we pray and trust you that the war is won. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are our advocate, that you stand always making intercession on our behalf, pleading before the throne of God above, and thank you that we can trust you with our eternal hope. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.